Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude, is made possible through the generous support of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and the Auerbach Foundation's Innovation Grants. I'm Emily Cohen. Thank you for listening. When we had to open the door for Elijah, my little brother is like, oh, so I'm going to get to go do it because I'm the youngest. And he opens the door and looks around and gets so excited. goes, he's here. We're like, what? What do you mean? But he's like, Elijah, he came. He picked our Seder. This never happens. Keep in mind, my brother is probably in first grade at this point. And we're like, what? What do you mean Elijah's here? He's like, he came. His car is in the driveway. And so we go to look. We're like, what are you talking about? Whose car is in the driveway? It's probably not Elijah's. And my friend who has come over for the Seder was like, um, yeah, that's, that's my car. Uh, Elijah does not drive a secondhand Toyota. And he was so, like, crushed and disappointed because he had thought that Elijah had picked our, you know, magic interfaith Seder <laughs> to, to come visit. It was amazing seeing, like, how excited and how into it he was. There's something special about Passover. Maybe it's that it's a holiday that hits when spring, for the most part, is actually in full swing. Maybe it's because its observance centers around food and, well, everybody loves food. Maybe it's because its most recognizable tradition consists of a very orchestrated meal, something that anybody can lead, whether a rabbi or a layperson or somebody who knows almost nothing about Judaism but can read a book. And of course, Passover centers around Judaism's most closely held story, the narrative of Exodus, of going from slavery to freedom, from the narrow place to a place of expansiveness. There is something special about these seven or eight nights. Something about Passover that invites in even the most secular of families, even families that don't identify as Jewish but have Jewish members, to celebrate, to have a cedar, to invite in friends and family and strangers. One of the highlights of any Seder is the four questions, so I'll be guiding us through the episode and having us get to know our three guests today with four questions. The first of which is, who are you? Hi, I'm Leanna Mendelson, and I am a cantorial student at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music, and I'm from Rochester, New York, but I currently live in Brooklyn. I come from an interfaith family, and when I was young, my parents themselves weren't particularly practicing anything. They both grew up in fairly religious households, but kind of became disengaged in college. When I was really little, religion was a family event. Nobody was religious, but religion was what brought family together. So, you know, we'd go to my grandparents for Christmas, and we'd go to my other grandparents for Passover. The family lore is that Passover was why we were raised Jewish. I had cousins who went to conservative day school when they were younger. And Passover is so much about like the ritual and the liturgy and watching my cousins know that and I didn't made me feel jealous. And so when I was in second grade in the car on the way home from Seder, I told my parents that I wanted to know how to do that. 
that I wanted to know the things that my cousins knew and I wanted to go to Hebrew school. The legend goes that this is the reason that the Mendelssohns joined a synagogue. For those of you who listened to our episode last month about Southern Jews by choice, you might have thought that that was a niche population we wouldn't necessarily hear from again. I'm delighted to tell you that you'd be wrong. I'm Margot Hughes Robinson. I'm a rabbinical student at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. I grew up all over the U.S. and a little bit in Europe, but mainly when people ask me where I'm from, I say North Carolina (laughs) because it's the, the easy answer. I grew up in a what I would describe as a pretty hardcore Catholic family. We went to church every week when I was growing up. When I was in like middle school, probably even more than twice a week, we would go. We would do dinner with the whole church community. We went to youth group. We went to Bible study. Very, very involved family. But I, I was in my eighth grade confirmation class and started just you know explore Judaism more, kind of out of this desire to. You know, it's confirmation. They're asking us to make an adult commitment to this religion. I'm going to read every single thing that I can. Um, and finding more and more that, like, well, Christianity was, was beautiful and was a faith tradition I think I was very comfortable in as far as the rituals and being raised in it actually didn't reflect a lot of my personal theology and what I was thinking and feeling about God or the Bible. And I was much more comfortable in a, in a Jewish space. A week after I graduated high school, I had my bait dean after... Yeah, four and a half years of study. So I started college as a fresh out the mikveh Jewish person. As we bring in our third guest, we'll be moving straight from the first question, who are you, to the second question, what is this Seder for you? My name is Alyssa Cherney. I'm currently a rabbinical student at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in my sixth and final year. I'm originally from New York and currently living in Philadelphia and hoping to stay there for the near future. Alyssa happens to be the only one of our guests today raised in a home with two Jewish parents, but that doesn't mean that she has a completely Jewish family story. We'll get into some of that later. For now, she's got a story about Seder and... In my family, I was really seen as the most religious, however you want to define that person. I was thinking about going to rabbinical school. I was working with LGBT Jewish community in Boston at an organization called Kesha and Passover rolled around and my dad and I had a conversation and I asked if I could change the Haggadah that year. What had been happening was that We had been using, it wasn't Maxwell House exactly, but it was a version of this really old, really outdated Passover Haggadah that my parents had inherited from my grandparents, and it was the only one that they had a set of Haggadot. And I felt like it just wasn't speaking to me as someone thinking about modern-day oppression. And my father said, sure, you can change it. The Jewish Women's Archive took JewishBoston.com's Haggadah, and they called it the Wandering is Over Haggadah and included women's voices. And so the spin was to really talk about the oppression of women in the modern age and what we could think about, including from a feminist perspective. So it didn't go so well in my family because I brought this 
Haggadah that I thought was going to be so modern and inclusive, and there were so many really strong women figures in my family, and all of a sudden it was seen as I was changing tradition, and that Passover was known for being the holiday in which my family sort of had their set jokes, and now all of a sudden we were having a serious discussion. No one was interested in having that discussion, so much so that one of the things the Haggadah asks is to put a orange on the Seder plate. And my brother actually said he was not going to attend the Seder if we chose to incorporate that piece. My dad kind of stepped in at some point and said, this is something we're trying. I also remember it being completely emotional and having these fights about what is tradition? What does that look like? You welcome in the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. And I think that when we aren't having that conversation about who are the strangers in our midst, who are the people that that we need to be fighting for actively, then we're sort of doing the Jewish story a disservice by not bringing up and recalling what it means to feel like we were slaves and what that coming through Mitzrayim is like and to think about the narrow places that exist in whatever culture we find ourselves in. For Alyssa, who doesn't remember life without a Seder, the Seder is a perfect place to really delve into modern-day issues of social justice and to make those the very center of the holiday. For Leanna, in addition to being the holiday that brought up a desire to get a Jewish education, Seder has represented a way into Judaism for many members of her family of lots of different faiths. Passover is a huge deal in my family. When my grandmother was alive, she was in charge. It would be my entire extended family, like 70 people. All my cousins and my second cousins and my aunts and uncles and my great aunts and uncles and family friends. We would like rent out the basement of a church because it was so big that it, it couldn't be contained like in somebody's house. Passover is a very welcoming holiday. You're supposed to leave an extra seat at the Seder for someone who needs one, you know, symbolically, but I think also very real that, you know, we always have guests and we always have a seat for everybody who needs one. And I think in a lot of ways, Passover is the holiday that opens up the family for new members. You know, my, my grandmother had five kids and all of their partners got to be part of the family through their participation in Passover. And everyone brings a dish and everyone contributes. And it's just a way to become part of the fabric of, of the family and in that way of the Jewish community. I remember those those bags of plagues, you know, where you have the little toy frogs that you throw and like squeezy toy cows. You like squeeze them and their eyes pop out because they have cattle plague, like all the goofy stuff. My cousins and I are all close in age. So, you know, we'd have this like intense Afikoman hunt. My grandmother passed away when I was 13. And I think there was there was an effort to kind of keep it going in the same Bain, but it's sort of started to decentralize. When I was in college, it was really hard to go to the family Seder. It was like too far or whatever. So I went to Hillel and to Chabad on campus, which was really nice because 
it's so much about being part of community. And if you can't be with your like real family, to be with your college family is really nice. And it was also there that I got to be exposed to to other traditions. I had a friend and roommate who, her grandmother is from Egypt, so she does some Sephardi customs. So that's where I learned about, you know, beating each other with green onions. And I hosted a Seder, a small one for some of my friends when I was a senior in college. Hosting my own Seder was one of the first things that made me feel like a Jewish adult. You know, we tell kids that when they become B'nai Mitzvah, they're becoming Jewish adults, but you know, they're still in middle school. There's so much growing left to do. Being able to put together my own Seder and to put together my Haggadah and decide and to feed people and to pass on these traditions that I got so strongly from my family, but to also make them my own, that was something that made me really feel empowered in my own Judaism. Margot has experienced a wide variety of satyrs since beginning to explore Judaism in high school. So I'm going to let her tell you about what the satyr can mean to her in A Tale of Four Satyrs. Uh, the, the first satyr I ever went to was a beautifully choreographed um, theological hot mess and that it was a messianic Christian satyr that I attended with my parents and their friend who was the dean of an evangelical seminary in the south i didn't realize how bizarre it was because i you know this this is like a compromise quote-unquote that worked for about five months so i was like okay i really love the um jewish thing i love that we're saying the shema um and going to a religious event on friday night or saturday morning but they definitely are still saying jesus a lot so i don't know if this is really a jewish thing and I, I think I'm going to go to shul now but it, you know, it was kind of something my family and I did as I was initially exploring Judaism. There were a lot of rituals that I think Jews would recognize of like dipping out you know, the, your finger in the wine dip out the, the ten plagues. It was also very Ashkenormative. We hid the afikomen and they compared because of the three pieces of matzah they said the afikomen was Jesus because it was broken and hidden away and refound and then was the sweet dessert part of the meal. But I think a lot of people who were there were there to feel like closer to Jesus, who did not have access to the Mishnah and certainly did not use Ashkenazi minhagim. A minhag is a custom. Many of the halakhot, the laws, and the minhagim, the customs, that we think of as being part of a Seder, weren't innovated until after the time of Jesus. So eventually... Margot got to experience more traditionally Jewish satyrs. I was in boarding school for the year in Montana, and the school let us sometimes go to town to do different religious services with, you know, groups that were in town. The the school was like, you're going to eat all the matzah crackers we've stored up at school anyway, so yeah, we'll let you go. So I got to do a seder, a community seder. So we were at a ski lodge that they had rented out with, like, taxidermy bears in the room. Um, and it was actually amazing, I think, to have time as a 15 to 16 year old living away from my parents. I was actually through that able to really sharpen and keep developing my personal religious identity. But a big part of that actually was getting to get, you know, in the bus with all the other Jewish kids. And I was like, wow, I feel totally normal in a way of like, I, I feel part of the group. You know, I get to go on the bus and I'm going to keep Pesach and I'm going to you know, fraternize with the Jewish kids. You know, somebody's parents in a box of Manischewitz macaroons, so we're all going to eat that, and they're going to share with me. And I, I felt very included, and it was 
so special to feel. I, I have a really special, sweet place in my heart for the, the Jewish community of, of Whitefish. A year or two after that, Margot got to have Seder with her family and Jewish friends down the street. My, my little brother is with friends with our neighbors down the street, and so we would occasionally do Seder at their house. My brother got really into it, but also had this rivalry with the, the neighbor's kids. So this kid, Joshua, like sings the four questions so beautifully, and my brother, I can just see, is like seething with jealousy, but doesn't want to admit it. Uh, <laughs> they're actually still friends, but he, you know, here's his friend Joshua saying, and you can see on his face, he's like, I, I need a Hebrew song. Um, and so at some point actually interrupts the Seder to be like, I too have a song. And he has heard the word Haggadah at some point of the Seder and goes, oh, Haggadah, oh, Haggadah, oh, Haggadah, Pesach time. And like sings all of My Darling Clementine with the words that he's just overheard during this meal. <laughs> and it was so like so much secondhand embarrassment, but also really, really fun. I actually think the fact that my my brother is 12 years younger than me, and I think getting to do a lot of home ritual with him and have him participate in it made a lot of holiday observance easier and that it could be like kid-friendly and fun and not about a big theological you know, debate one way or the other, although there were certainly, especially at the beginning, a lot of those, but more about we're just celebrating as a family. When Margot was in college, she and her now husband got to lead a Seder in their own apartment for the first time. Here's why. When my husband and I were in college, I was an executive member and a producer for my school's musical theater club or production company, student club, whatever you want to call it. And we always missed Seder because we were always either doing shows or practices would run so late that we would miss whatever Seder was provided on campus. And so one year, my husband and I said, my boyfriend at the time, not my husband, you know what, enough of this. We're going to host a late night Seder. It was a very ad hoc thing in my dorm room. And then the next year, it kind of expanded and we had had our own apartment with some friends. And what we did was cleared out a room. Everyone sat on the floor. We felt so adult because we like went out and bought a rack of lamb and like cooked it in our oven and put together the Seder for like all of the musical theater kids who were missing Seder at home who like couldn't go home because... They were, had committed to this crazy theater rehearsal. And we ate dinner, and then I went through the story of the Haggadah like as quickly as I could, probably adding a lot of snarky commentary, probably drinking way more than four cups of wine, and then we all watched The Prince of Egypt together. If you're anything like me, Passover is lovely for the first few days, and then come days six and seven and eight, if you follow the eight-day rule, and you find yourself really just wanting bread back, food is an important piece of Passover observance and, of course, of Jewish life in general. So for our third question, I'm going to ask our guests to talk about kashrut and the question of what do you eat on Passover? And in families that are made up of people of different traditions, what do you eat in general? My grandmother kept a strictly kosher household, but she loved lobster. So she had a, an extra set of utensils that she would bring out to the garage so she could boil lobster in the garage. I remember we used to go on big family camping trips and we bought a giant leg of smoked ham and like everyone was all excited about this at the camping trip but at passover she was very very like miduyak exacting precise strict about the kashrut she made the best brisket in the world 
She also made sauerbraten, which is like brisket made with vinegar, which is, you know, vinegar is very common in like Eastern European cuisine. And in later years, my mom wound up in charge of the brisket and she would go to the kosher butcher to get the pounds upon pounds upon pounds of brisket. And they would always throw in a shank bone to roast for the Seder plate. Many Jews get very, very tired of matzah, but Leanna had the experience of being in a Jewish community last year for whom matzah is not taken for granted. I was in Belarus. I traveled with another student, and we went to five or six seders over the course of a week. It was a lot. It, it was amazing seeing the vibrancy of these, of these communities. But one of the things that really stuck with me was wherever we'd go, people would offer us matzah. They would, like, force it on us as a snack. They were like, eat, eat, like, have some matzah. And it was just dry matzah. Like, this isn't that good. Like, we don't want it. And, like, we're not hungry. But we went to a museum about Belarusian history in Mogilev. And we were there with the leader of the Jewish community of the city. Her name's Mila, and she's amazing. We were looking at an exhibit of what life was like in the end of the 1800s. And one of the things was a hand-craked matzah press. And she sees that and she goes, I remember those. And she tells us a story of how when she was a little girl, they used to have to go on these like clandestine missions basically to get matzah. It would be one person would have a crank like that. And, you know, it would be passed through the grapevine, but, like, using code names and, like, code locations because if the Soviet authorities found out, people would be punished. Matzah wasn't allowed at all. And I realized that the reason all of the older people wanted us to eat all the matzah was because they were so grateful to have a surplus of it. For Margot, the question of food for Seder is tied up with the question of kashrut in general. She comes from a family that has a lot of food traditions that she's no longer able to partake in because of her own decision to keep a kosher life. I, I really miss, like, crawfish etouffee in particular, which is, like, not even a thing I think most people in the U.S. would even think about. They're like, oh, bacon, or oh, this, I'm like, mm-mm, crawfish. I grew up occasionally, like, going to a crawfish boil, which is where you get all of the live crawfish and then if you're a kid and you're like you know a little jerk in the corner you like raise your crawfish before you boil them and eat them which sounds actually totally inhumane now um but you know that being a thing that you gather around and you see people and is a way to to connect with people and it's like i'll be over here with my pb and j looking wistfully at everyone's shellfish <laughs> but i will say like trying to eat Kosher in New Orleans is already hard, even when you were of the hot dairy out persuasion, like myself. But trying to eat kosher for Pesach in New Orleans is very, very hard. <laughs> I think there was one evening with some suspicious trout almondine. I'm like, I'm going to have to ask after I eat this just because I, I, don't, I don't know what they put on top of this. I ordered it thinking it was going to come out one way and it came out something else. And I was like, you know what? This is, this is cornmeal and I'll ask tomorrow and... Yom Kippur is coming up, but <laughs> we did our best and it's been eight days. But it, yeah, it, it's surprising how much it worked out. And it, you know, we actually became kind of a fun game of like, well, you can't have, you know, whiskey, but if we all go out for drinks, can you have tequila? Like, yes, we can have tequila. What fun this will be. I will say the line, the line that I hold when I'm with my mom and the line that I hold when I'm with my 
grandmother, you know, depending on what other family is coming around. On my dad's side, I have cousins who are vegetarian, and so it's very easy to just default to whatever they're eating, and we're totally fine. With my mom's mom, I'll hold a fuzzier line. And I think I, I was really worried, too, that my family would get mad until my mom very sweetly one time sat me down. She was like, we love you, so we're going to make sure that you feel welcomed and taken care of and making it work. I found that, too, it's, as long as I try to say, you know, it's not ever a commentary on what you want to eat, like, let me sit over here without my bacon and you like please enjoy your muffalata and then a giant milkshake like i'm so happy that someone gets to enjoy this because it exists in the world and i can't have it finally we reach the fourth question what does seder mean for you today I went to the March for Our Lives, and one of my friends that I was marching with wrote Dayenu on her sign. And this idea of enough. You know, Dayenu, we usually frame in the Seder in like a positive, like, like it would have been enough that this good thing happened to us. But it was also, it was also a story of like horrible hardship and, and terror that happens in, in the Haggadah. And we also said enough to slavery and oppression. We talk about also... It's in the Reform Sidor, Mishkan Tefillah, somewhere, where it says, wherever we go, it is eternally Egypt. And this idea that I think right now we're at a crossroads where it's so clear that there's terrible troubles in our world. And how do we pass through them? How, you know, we've got to part the sea and march to the dry land on the other side of what's going on in the world. And so I think this story is very relevant. For Margot, Seder now can mean a long traditional affair that goes late into the night, but it can also mean getting the halachic requirements out of the way in order to be fully present with family. She's been traveling with her mother in Spain this Passover and was going to have a very quick Seder. Luckily for her, she has experience. Last, last Passover, actually, we were with my mom's family in New Orleans, and we had worked it out so we didn't have to get in a car or spend any money over hog, and, like, we had hog down, and, like, everybody knows what Shabbat is, so we didn't have to do anything on Saturday, but, you know, there wasn't, like, a Seder we were going to, so my husband and I flew in the day before, so we didn't have to fly on hog, went to a corner store that magically had matzah, got some wine, got some veggies, found like wasabi sauce or something we could use as maror, cut up some apples, you know, had like a little crappy Seder on the floor of our hotel room as quick as we could. <laughs> you know, and then like joined everybody else for the rest of it. For Alyssa, Passover has shifted significantly in the last few years. Since that first Seder with her family and the feminist Gada, she has gone through all but one year of rabbinical school, gotten married, and become a parent. Her partner comes from an interfaith background, and while they're raising their daughter Ava Jewish, holidays can be something of a complex time. Living in America with all our diverse religions and traditions often becomes an interesting challenge when you're teaching little ones. I spent my past Shabbat at a kid's play place, and this past weekend was really when the Easter bunny was out in full force, <laughs> and they were doing an Easter egg hunt, and I said, well, you know, my child's Jewish, she's not going to participate, she doesn't know what this is, and sure enough, the bunny comes out, and she literally lights up, runs towards the bunny, and says, bunny! So, I, so it 
it almost doesn't matter what I teach her sometimes. She is experiencing multiple traditions for herself. She's sort of taking the best of all the holidays around her. She was so excited to open these eggs and find chocolate or something inside. And I'm not going to tell her that she's not allowed to to learn about other traditions. As for Seder with a toddler, you know, I don't know what Ava's going to imagine this particular year is happening, but I can tell you that I already Amazon Prime some some frogs this morning. So <laughs> I'm trying to make it playful. It's it's really hard to describe some of these painful moments in history to young children. I mean, it's not easy to think about how to tell a very young child about the plague of the death of the firstborn. I don't even know how you be... I'm like glad that's not my problem this year because my child will just wear sunglasses and think it's something to play with and interact. I happened to be spending Seder with Alyssa and her family this year. So I can tell you that Ava definitely enjoyed the sunglasses. She enjoyed them so much that she popped out both of the lenses and then wanted another pair. But I think that it's our job to teach this story. I'm going to have to figure out how to tell that story. We can only experience joy when we know what it's like to have struggled through oppression. So I think that's something I'm thinking about this Passover in terms of ritual. It's why do we need rituals in our lives? We need them to mark occasions and Occasions are not only happy, joyous occasions, but they're ones that are full of fear, hurt, and brokenness, too. And that building containers for all of our feelings is what makes ritual alive for me. I'm going to throw in one more fantastic tidbit from Alyssa's Seder. When her mother was getting ready to bring out bowls of matzo ball soup, she naturally asked if anybody didn't want soup. She asked twice and nobody had responded except to shake their heads, at which point Alyssa said, everybody wants soup, mom, it's matzo ball soup. Because sometimes you gotta go with tradition. Deep thanks to Alyssa Cherney, Margot Hughes-Robinson, and Leanna Mendelson for being a part of this episode. If you'd like to know more about some of what they were talking about, definitely check out the show notes at our website, jew2podcast.com. They should be up by tomorrow at the latest, Monday, April 9th. Through our website, you can now also make a donation to the podcast. Although the podcast is free and it will remain so, it's not free from the production end. And any contribution you can make will help in terms of hosting fees and advertising and all kinds of other boring stuff like that that is necessary to make a podcast run. As always, your feedback is more than welcome, and as always, I'm looking for interesting people to interview. So if that's you, or somebody that you know, let me know. You can reach out over Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at Podcast, email at Podcast at gmail.com, or reach out over the website. We'll be back next month, or possibly at the end of April. In the meantime, enjoy the return to bread, and Shavua Tov!